This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. I'm lucky, not you, because I just got to listen to two hours of you at least trying to uh, project your opinions on a webinar. And you succeeded, you did, uh, but I have the luxury of just sitting back and sort of putting my feet up on the table and just enjoying that for two hours. And then you, you put in all your effort and now you're stuck with me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I'm not going to take that much of your time. I know it's past 10 o'clock. It's almost 10.30 in, in Beirut. So for, for that reason alone, I owe you a lot. So thank you for staying up and doing this with me. Um, a lot was said in that webinar. And okay. I, I think you're, you're in a way, you're able to kind of dissect many problems that amateurs like me need. Sort of like a, it's like a straightforward way of understanding that this is a, it is a very complicated subject, but there's one issue that has to be tackled. And I'm getting from you that accountability is lacking from any sort of uh, any discussion, that it's not really the core, it should be the core. There's not enough accountability. But we can get into that and we can see if there's any debate there. Before jumping into the financial mess that Lebanon is in, just from your own sort of, uh, your own view, from where you are, sort of what, what you know about the issue, the last few days, especially after the, the riots that we saw over the weekend, the demonstrations that some at times turned violent, uh, do you sense that there's anything positive happening right now? Well, firstly, thanks for inviting me onto your podcast. I think um, listening to me speak Arabic for two hours about BDL makes you unlucky, actually, not, not lucky. <laughs> Um, but uh, I'm happy to have changed it up and be speaking English now. Um, you know, on the topic of uh, accountability, it's uh, it's good that you were listening in on the other webinar because, um, you know, not to be cruel or unkind to anybody, but the other panelist on the webinar was somebody who was at BDL and played a big role in the policies of BDL for the last 10 years. And as you saw, wouldn't take responsibility for anything that happened in that time. Um, We have a, um, I don't know, a cultural thing, a social thing here where people find it difficult to just say, I don't know, I didn't know, we made a mistake, we we have taken these steps to make sure it won't happen again. We just don't have that. So you end up in a situation where Name me one person in this entire country, okay, in any level of government you want, or the banks or anywhere, that said, we made a mistake. It it does not exist. And it's the same ones who are now, excuse me, trying to fix this problem. A problem that isn't, you know, sometimes I feel like we treat this problem, or at least the local media does, and, and people in decision makers and people of influence, they treat it as though it was some external shock that happened to us today, last month, and they had nothing to do with it, and now they're trying to figure out how to solve it. This is an issue that's been in the making for more than 10 years, and really, you can go back even further if you want. Mm -hmm. This is not a new thing. This is just the consequence of things that have been building up. So... You can't be the one that was was shepherded the country into this, or at least did not see it coming, or at least was an active participant in it, or however you know, however you want to 
classify people who, who have been involved in, in positions of authority the last 10 years and then say, you know, it wasn't my fault. I didn't know it was, it was going to happen, you know, because then what's stop it from happening again? Nobody was held accountable for it. Not, I'm not even talking criminally. I'm just talking a staff member, an employee, an advisor, somebody you did not see this coming. You should not be involved in the solution. You should be, there should be some kind of um, personal accountability that you're held to. Otherwise, what, what makes people in any position and a job in the private sector perform? That's the knowing that you're held to a standard. And if you don't meet that standard, you're gonna be, you're, there's gonna be consequences to it. We just don't have that here. There are questions that are being asked in terms of how Lebanon reached where it is today. And I got from the exchange that, and I, I hope I'm getting this right, you're, you're making the case that if you were part of this machine up until, let's say, early October 2019, it's time for you maybe, maybe to step aside and let someone else sort of try. Did, did I get that right? That, that you're kind of... You're disillusioned also that anyone, anyone, whether their intentions are good or bad, that was part of the machine, it's time for them to exit the stage. <clears throat> no, there are plenty of good people who saw it coming and tried to do something about it. No, they should, I mean, what they, they've met the standard and, and we, we okay. know, and we're, we're happy to have them. Right. But there's right. some people that contributed directly to the crisis. Okay. And are now trying to get out of being held uh, accountable for for what they've done. And not even October 2019. The problem started way before that. Really, you know. I mean, just apologize. <laughs> say we say we messed up. Say this is what we're doing to correct the mistakes of the past. Because what faith do people have that you're going to be able to get them out of this if you are not even ready yet to acknowledge that you were a part of we're actively a part of the machine contributing to it that got us here. You know, I mean, is an apology too much to ask for? I mean, so it's, no, nobody, so it's, everybody thinks it's somebody else's fault. So it's, it's, it's in a way, it's almost like the <laughs> resignation is not even the goal. It's admittance. It's saying that we got something wrong. That's really where it is. It's almost like the okay. most basic Step demand. <laughs> or some, yeah, Step right. One. Yes. But okay, so let's let's get into this. And I know that and I, I kind of I agree with you that obviously the issues did not begin in October 2019 or even 2019 for that matter. But in that exchange, you kind of hinted at there is perhaps a marker, and that's the beginning of the Syrian revolt turn, turned war. That that could be a tipping point that impacted Lebanon dramatically. So let's go back there. In terms of the decisions that were made in Lebanon vis-a-vis -vis that, that crisis, and maybe lessons learned in terms of making sure that if we're going to start moving forward in the right direction, that we at least learned from the mistakes we made back then. Because there's no guarantee that Lebanon will be shielded from regional crises. That's just not on the horizon. I wish that was on the horizon. That's a noble goal, getting Lebanon sort of out of the orbit of conflict in the Middle East. But let's just say that that is the beginning of the most dramatic consequences that we've been seeing in Lebanon recently. Is there anything that, that should be addressed from those decisions? And this we can sort of keep this as, as general as you'd like, because I know that the, it's a decade. And I know within that decade, a lot of things happened. But c can you take from that experience and say, this is what we should never do again, and perhaps you see these things being repeated, unfortunately? Sure. <clears throat> so the beginnings of the problems we face today can be traced back I mean, really, you know, you could trace them back as long as you want, but let's let's stick to 2011 because that's really when the dollars inflows into Lebanon started to slow down noticeably. Mm -hmm. um, the economy uh, started stagnating because of the war in Syria. Um, I mean, Syria is, is you know an important trading partner for us, an important transit area for us to export our goods um, beyond Syria. Mm -hmm. um, the neighborhood became more dangerous. There was political risk. People just started to lose trust in just this this area of the Middle East. Um, at that point, you know, you see that your dollar inflows are starting to fall. Um, you had in the 
couple years before that, a lot of dollars flowing into Lebanon, more than, you know, right. the years before that because of the global financial crisis, Lebanon yes. was shielded from that. Right. So at that time, you could have started, you could have floated your exchange rate because you had a lot of dollars flowing in, you didn't need to fix the exchange rate anymore. Oh, so, so back then, that should have been like a, a, a forecasted sort of idea that this is the right measure to take because of what we're witnessing next door. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because mm. no, because of the dollars that had been flowing in the two or three years before that. Right. So okay. you could have, so, you could have yeah. already started. You could have already started before the Syrian war. I see. Um, right. You could have used the money that had flown in in productive investments. Um, you know, infrastructure. I mean, you need that to have a productive economy. Um, we used it all. We we really squandered it because we used it all in non-productive investments in real estate in this country. <laughs> and it increased our appetite for consumption, um, right. yeah. especially import consumption, because we had a fixed exchange rate that made foreign goods much cheaper uh, relative to what they should have been. So we ended up importing everything. We never developed an export industry. We never developed real industry because it was just cheaper to export. The Syrian war started. Those inflows slowed down. Um, we still, you know, we still never did the reforms we needed to do to build that productive economy that we need. We just decided that we're just going to try to kick the can a little bit more, try to keep those dollar inflows coming, which were, remember, they were unsustainable dollars, right? Sustainable dollars are dollars you get because you exported something or because you got an investment from abroad. Mm -hmm. Our dollars were unsustainable because they came from a large part of them from people coming and putting deposits here. That money's got to be paid back. Right. You know, we never right. really we thought that it'll come and we'll never pay it back. We'll just use it. And that's where we ended. So that those dollar inflows kept slowing down. In 2015, they slowed down a lot. And rather than saying, okay, now it's serious. We need to do these reforms right now. We decided to kick the can a little bit more by saying, well, what if we just offer these people higher interest rates? Maybe they'll keep sending them. So we did that. That bought us a few more years, but, you know, not much. Um, and those extra dollars that came, we used them in the same way. We used them to fund our import consumption and on investments that were not productive and not generating any returns. So what ended up happening is you ended up with a huge amount of dollar debt. And I'm not talking just, I'm not talking about government debt. I'm just talking about the debt of the country, which is... Yeah. Mainly people's deposits, you know, it's got to be paid back. It's debt that the country owes. And yeah. all of that money was just spent, spent on import consumption. It was not taken and invested in something productive so that in the future it could be repaid. It was taken, offered a very high interest rate, and then spent. And that interest rate couldn't, the central bank, which sucked in all those dollars, couldn't pay that interest. So it just kept printing more and more money to pay that interest. It's such an important point that now we have, we are creating so much new money just to pay the interest on all of the interest that's accrued in the system. And that yeah. is what's causing the exchange rate to, um, to increase, prices to go up. And we haven't even really, we're just at the tip of the iceberg now. So I like this analogy of kicking the can down the road. And several people I've spoken to um, in recent weeks, have used the same analogy. And I, I, I don't know if this is by design. All of you belong to this sort of nerds world, <laughs> finance for Lebanon. It may be that. But I think it's also the proper analogy that, and, it, and in a sense, you're kicking the can, but each time you kick it, it's sort of the distance shrinks, and you can't really yeah. kick it any longer. But I want to get into the years that I, I sense from what you're saying that it just required a bit of maybe... Not foresight, but professionalism, maybe? I mean, it's almost like rather than do the the work that needs to be done, there's sort of a consensus that we don't need to do this right now. We can sort of just wait it out. Does that, does that boil down to in incompetence? Or is that a bigger sort of politics problem in Lebanon that all, all sort of basic needs or let's say basic services and forget i mean beyond the central bank just sort of the day-to-day -day affairs of the lebanese state is it a 
big political problem that's not being addressed? Or is it, is it really just mediocrity that we just don't have the right people in, in right positions? So I'm, I'm just curious your thoughts on wh- what, is the, what is the actual problem boiled down to? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. And I'm, I've been trying to figure it out over the last few months, uh, being a, a lot more involved in kind of seeing different parties and how they're uh, parties like individuals and, and institutions and political parties and how they're facing this crisis. Mm-hmm. Somebody a lot smarter than me told me anything that happens in Lebanon, on you know, that a politician does or a party does or someone of influence does can be explained in two ways. So always look for those two things when you're trying to analyze a position that somebody's taking or a policy that's being proposed. Whether or not they're wearing a suit for the conversation, because neither one of us have done that, which I think is a good thing. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. No, well, listen, I'm wearing I'm wearing shorts down here, so good. Um, I, I don't I don't do suits anymore. But you always look for two things: how do I kick the can a little bit longer, and how do I make money off of this? That's okay. it. Yeah. And then if you know if you look think of it that way, you can understand why they do everything they do. I see. Is it, there is a big part of it is incompetence. You know. They just don't know. A lot of them. Some of them are smart and do know, but a lot of them really just don't know. Yeah. Um, and I'm talking at, at the highest level. Actually, sure, I'm talking sure. about all levels. Let's, let's talk about all levels, okay? Mm-hmm. Because the problem in Lebanon is not only concentrated at the highest levels, even though that's where you solve it because things flow down. But really, it's at just every level of everything. You know, I've never seen a country like this where from the, you know, and with all respect to the people who are in these institutions really trying hard from the inside, despite all the disillusionment they feel to do good. And there's a lot of them and I know them. Mm-hmm. But you have incompetence at every level of government and, and companies and, and whatever. And you have. And a part of that is the lack of accountability we're talking about because, you know, you're not accountable. So you, there's no reason for you to do any better. Right. But put that aside. OK, any any country can have incompetence. We problem is we have incompetence at the very highest levels of, of government. Mm-hmm. But you also have the fact and this is very important that any of the reforms they need to do that are true and real reforms that will actually get the country out of this will cost them personally. So they are incentivized to kick the can and keep the system going because they are the beneficiaries of that system. So how do you expect them to change it at the cost of themselves? We don't have any heroes in this country. There's no good guys in this in any place you look. If you look at the cabinet, the government, political parties, the banks, uh, the central bank, there, there, are no, there are no good guys in this game. Um, and that is a big problem because we don't have any person who will put the interest of their country and people ahead of their own interest. So if we can, just delay this another year or two. We got 20 billion left of reserves. That'll buy us three or four years. Let's just do that. And then, you know, Allah Bifrisha, we'll see, you know, God, God will sort it out for us. And, you know, that's, that's what we face. I want to ask you then, if there are no heroes, and if these are the two things, mediocrity and, and corruption, now at a very sort of delicate crossroads in, in Lebanese history, uh, do you see any component any sort of, it doesn't even have to be an individual. It could just be, is, is there any way, any way to navigate this issue? Because all of these sort of bigger problems got us here, and they are more or less the same crowd, more or less. Despite the best efforts of people online and all of these sort of discussions, and I mean, they're endless, these policy papers, these emergency rescue plans, all of them. And they're from people that really want to see progress in Lebanon, but they don't wield political authority in Lebanon. Is there is there any light at the end of the tunnel in, in that sense? And this and I, I, I kind of I, I'll bring up the IMF only in that because that is a serious negotiation and there is potentially a way to curtail the worst aspects of corruption in Lebanon through that body. But in any sense, in any sense, do you see sort of any hope given the mess that we're in? Yeah. I mean, firstly, I'll say the IMF negotiations are, are, are they're not going to go anywhere. We have a very small chance of having successful negotiations. Really? It's, you don't, you it's, don't it's, see them? No way. Mm, okay. I was at the beginning, but now I'm not because I see where the political current is going yeah. and the plan that is being rallied behind 
by most of the political forces is one that the IMF won't accept, one that kicks the can. And uh, it's, it's an active sabotage of the IMF negotiations, unfortunately. So I, it's, it, the IMF is not going to accept kicking the can. It's not going to accept not doing reforms. And that's, that's what the influential decision makers want. And so mm. I give it a 20% chance at this wow. point. Wow. You know, I, I've spoken to, this is 176 or 177th episode. You're the first person who's made it that kind of sort of said it that that way that it's such a low chance of working i didn't i didn't think it was that bad but that that's yeah, it's bad. we need we need to start thinking of a plan b because it's not it's not going anywhere unfortunately i think people need to need to accept that now it's uh, not accepted actually they shouldn't accept it because it's a failure on our part okay because the imf hasn't even asked us for anything yet so on what basis are we are we are these negotiations going to fail they're going to fail because we're not willing to face up to the problems that we have and the IMF isn't going to play games with us. Okay. But so in the, in the, yeah, sorry. I, I keep interrupting you. But in that sense, okay, let's put the IMF aside. You have the protests. You have demands that are unmet. And you have experts debating left and right. What is the hope for you then, if, if hope exists, for yeah. navigating the corruption and the mediocrity that we've, come, we've grown too accustomed to? <clears throat> okay, I'll tell you what, what gives me hope. What gives me hope is that we have a very talented population, all right? Mm. We have tons of people with world-class experience, extremely smart. They just happen to not be the ones making decisions. They happen to be the ones who maybe leave the country and emigrate and benefit other countries. Um, when I see, since six months ago, that when I started seeing it, but it existed, of course, way before six months ago, mm. how much time and effort people are spending to try to understand what's going on how to fix it, right. um, yeah. hundreds and hundreds of hours of personal time of people who get nothing out of it, who are constantly faced with roadblocks right. and trying so hard to just not let the mental health impact of this train wreck that they're seeing slow motion in front of them happen and the wasted effort that they've been putting Mm-hmm. It gives me a lot of pride because this doesn't happen in most other countries. People have full-time jobs, people it's have true. families, <laughs> and they're dedicating yeah. their entire huge chunks of their time to try to do something that they get nothing out of at all. Absolutely. And, and trying to not lose faith and stay hopeful and not be disillusioned is really so incredibly hard and i tell you from personal experience it's something that i face every single day to just keep doing what small thing you're doing because maybe it won't make a difference and i know it won't make a difference but at least i'll have a soft landing okay and i'll know that when as things get worse and worse it's not my fault that they got worse because i did everything in my power to try to make some small difference and I can go and live the rest of my life knowing that it wasn't my fault and it wasn't for me lack of trying. I did my, I did my best. And if I can get that out of it, I'm, I'll be content. Because otherwise, I don't, the level of guilt a Lebanese person is going to feel for what this, where this country is going is something that is, people will, will not be able to live with themselves thinking that I didn't, do my, I didn't play my part in this. That's what gives me hope, is that there's a lot of people doing that. So, but even then, what you eloquently just described, the aspirations of, I think, the average Lebanese person who's trying to live in us in a decent country, even in that, there isn't much political authority there, that the chances of that sort of putting pressure on the current lineup in the Lebanese state or whatever regime comes and replaces it, if one changes, that even then the politics won't change. It's just the, the aspirations are consistent, but the politics are the same. And that, that, that sounds rather bleak because then it's sort of, uh, despite, your valley, despite your best efforts, it kind of, it's sinking ship regardless. And I, 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 and I don't want, I mean. <laughs> there are, no, but there yeah. are areas of impact yeah. that are noticeable. For example, I'll give you a few from my personal experience and others have, have theirs. Mm-hmm. We've been successful in um, reaching the media 
the local media, helping reporters and journalists know how to cover these kinds of stories that are new to them, new to all of us, really, but we don't have a history of economic and finance journalism here. Yes. They actively reach out to us to help them understand a story that breaks and how should they write about it, and they take our, our opinion. Mm-hmm. Even uh, reporters on TV that do interviews with people, they you know they reach out to us actively to help them prepare for it. I think that's a very, very important contribution because people will stop getting bullshit and they'll start getting real information to make informed decisions. Um, some politicians reach out to us. Um, uh, so politicians that are in with, I mean, currently in some position, or is it more just the uh, the, the faces and names that we're familiar with that are, that are not in the regime right now? Um, sometimes it's people that are in the current, uh, you know, the Sulta in, in Sulta, authority yeah. now. Yeah. Sometimes it's people who are out, who are, you know, quote, opposition. Uh, okay, so, so there are people opposition. at the top that are tuned in. To, to your voices like yours and... and uh, Well, I mean, I don't know about tuned in, but they listen, they read, it, and then they yeah. don't do something else. Okay, no, that, that, is, that is actually an accomplishment. You know, it didn't cross my mind that you'd have people concerned at the top now with sort of the voices like yours and, and other voices. So that's good. That is a positive development. Yeah. Yeah. But what you need is for them to... I'm not saying listen to me, Mike Azar. You know, I'm who am I? I'm not anybody... <laughs> But, you know, there's a lot of people who are saying important things and you take a little from this, a little from that. And then it's your responsibility as a elected representative of, of the people to and, you know, make the right to make a decision that you have to stand behind eventually. Okay. Um, but so let's say let's say that's happening. Do you see that? Do you see that as changing the behavior of key components within the state? Where no, a, it's not. No, it's not at all. Oh, Okay. Uh, it's not about. It's not making. A, it's not making a difference at the political level because, again, how do I kick the can, and how do I make money off of it? And that explains all the decisions. Now, there are people outside of government, outside of this government, mm. who are either in parliament or political forces outside of of parliament, who do ask, who do like try to get advice and try to help uh, ask us and others to help them understand issues. And um, but, you know, they face the same issues we do that they they don't have political authority to actually make policy. Um, and it's um, it's not yet institutionalized. You know, you can't just do ad hoc meetings for, with somebody and get advice from them. These are very complicated issues. You need a team. You need uh, a team working for you, helping you develop policies. And let's say we look at just the opposition. Okay. Because to be honest, the the so, sorry op- opposition here. You mean the political parties in the opposition, or you mean protesters and anybody? And this is something that that um, I have been thinking about before. Is that without, like you said, you can talk to the authority party, the parties in authority, all you want. If they don't, if they're not going to move, then the only thing you can do is try to have a credible, legitimate opposition here to give people other options, to show them what an alternative looks like to something that they have become accustomed to since the beginnings of this country, basically, since the Civil War, let's say, since after the Civil War. We don't have the capacity in this country, most of us, to even visualize what does an alternative look like. And our opposition, the protesters, um, different mm-hmm. protest groups and even opposition in parliament, they do not, they're so fragmented and they don't have a platform that shows people what an alternative is like. This is actually the perfect segue into why I reached out to you to begin with. And it, uh, I don't think it's a dated tweet. It's maybe from 10 days ago or two weeks ago, but it's it's that sort of, it's that question that is never really asked Properly, and I think you finally sort of just you just addressed it. Like, well, let's try a parallel regime. I don't think you actually meant a sort of uh, Lebanese government in exile. I don't think you meant it that way. Or maybe maybe you did, but I assumed it was more like just at least present the alternative and whether or not it's appealing to the average Lebanese protester, government supporter doesn't matter. Whether or not the citizenry is ready for something different. And uh, 
You know, I liked the debate online because there were people rushing to defend you, then people sort of saying, what are you talking about? There's no such thing. And I'm curious, because that, that is really why I reached out to you, what you would consider at this point in history to be an appropriate alternative for the... I, I automatically say power sharing, but I'm trying to remove that from my lexicon what a Lebanese state should look like and how it should operate if it is going to tackle these kinds of issues. Because at the end of the day, accountability, corruption, transparency, we're, we're talking about the state. We're talking about representatives in the state and we're talking about the state itself. But just in terms of ma managing a normal country, what, what does that look like to you, given Lebanon's history, given Lebanon's problems and the problems that we are, we're familiar with. They tend to be political. They tend to be also regional issues. Lebanon gets sucked into. But what is the alternative? Sure. I mean, we this conversation is gaining a lot of steam now because I think people have come to the realization that what we have now just doesn't work, and mm -hmm. we need to think of something else. When people talk about a new social contract, um, this is what they're referring to. I mean, I'm not in a position, I think, to tell you structurally what a new system in Lebanon looks like. I can't come up here and defend federalism, for example, which is something that a lot of people want, or to defend the sectarian power sharing, because I just I just don't know enough about the pros and cons and the implications mm. of all of these different uh, organizational structures of society and, and of government. Now, I think one thing that is obvious is that you need to decentralize somehow um, because it, it doesn't make sense for me when, I, when I'm in Tripoli where, where my family's from to that they have to go to Beirut to do anything. You know, you, everything is done from a very centralized system. Yeah. It's, 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 it's inefficient, it's inconvenient, and uh, it, it hurts accountability, I think. But my perspective is in how do you run government, no matter how you decide to organize government and organize society. I'm somebody who spent most of my life uh, in the U.S. So I have seen the benefits of having a liberal democracy, a pluralistic liberal democracy with, that is uh, uh, based on meritocracy, based on accountability, um, transparency, uh, independent branches of government, just all these like kind of um, typical things that, that people associate with what does good government look like. Yeah. So when I think about what does the alternative look like, I'm not really thinking of it from the perspective of what, what organizational structure does this country need to have because I, can't, I don't really know enough to say that. But what I visualize is even people in opposition either the revolutionaries or, or the independent MPs or whatever you want, they criticize a lot. They criticize this government, this politician, this minister, whatever. But you don't know what, okay, what would you have done? What, what does your, you know, if you were a minister, what would you have said? What would you have done? So what I, what I was thinking of is how do you bridge that gap from people being able to visualize what does a good politician look like? What does a good minister of finance and prime minister look like? What would he have done? For the whoever ends up being part of this opposition, and you can have political differences and economic policy differences and whatever, but mm -hmm. we're so far away from arguing those things now <laughs> that there is a common ground now. There's yeah. a common ground to the next couple of years that you can get people together who belong, you know, let people on the left, people on the right, the center, whatever. What if there was, and you know, this might just be ideological or idealistic rather thinking that it could never happen. But I see like, you know, a politician go up, whatever, the prime minister goes up and does a speech. And I could think, man, what a shitty speech that was, uh, you know, and I, I, I imagine what would somebody <laughs> like, um, uh, you know, because my perspective is is U.S. because that's where I was raised. What would uh, what would an Obama speech in this crisis have have sounded like? One that really rallied people uh, and got people excited and mobilized this country to face this crisis. You know, or anybody, not just Obama, so whoever, whatever you know, politician you 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 feel gives you inspiration. Um, 
But what if there was that here? What if, you know, these opposition groups got together and formed a parallel government, a shadow government, not in the English sense, but just a, I am the, you know, minister of this and he is the minister of that and show people on this issue, this is what I would have said. This is a speech I would have done. This is how I would have solved it and show what a functioning government looks like. Can I ask you just in a simplistic way? Because I think the simplest question here kind of exposes just how crazy the situation is. In that shadow experience, and let's just say you're nominating names based on merit, not on anything else. Do you find yourself automatically trying to adhere to the way Lebanon has governed itself? Meaning, are you trying to then find minority representation? Are you trying to, uh, you know, adhere to certain quotas? Or are you thinking way beyond that? You're just saying, this. none of that matters. I'm, I'll have 10 of one, of one flavor as long as they can get the job done. And that's my shadow experience. Ronnie, you don't need to. Mm. You really don't need to because by picking based on meritocracy, you're going to have a mix of people. I mean, look at look at the nerds, for example. Small <laughs> yes. scale. That is it's true. It's true. You're right. The <laughs> nerds are are Maronites and Orthodox and Sunnis and Shias and Jews and, and, and whatever you want. We came together organically. Yeah. That is how it would work if you do it by meritocracy. You're not going to have 10 Sunnis because... There's talent everywhere. You don't you don't need to end up that way. So so it's a natural it's a natural conclusion of merit meritocracy and at least a potential shadow experience in Lebanon that you wouldn't have to worry about those old issues because they don't matter at least when it comes to this pulling in professionals. It just doesn't it doesn't matter. You can you don't need to adhere to quotas because it lines up naturally by default. Cuz that's that's yeah, a very exactly. Okay, so that's I a mean, very listen, if, yeah. Sorry. If you have, if you find that you have, I mean, in the shadow cabinet or whatever you want to call it, I don't think it'll be an issue. Of course, in a, in a society, in a government, you may find that some groups do end up being underrepresented for structural reasons because they come from poorer areas, they have less opportunities, they've been neglected. Yeah. And you okay, you end up having to, I mean, the same way you do it racially in some places, you would do it, whatever. You might have to do that here. But I mean, that's just a conversation for, I think, another time. But to but say that... In a way, yeah. Sorry, sorry, go, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no I've interrupted you, you too many times. Have, <laughs> no, 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 please interrupt. To say that you need, you know, this uh, position in the central bank or this position in the ministry needs to be this religion and that religion. You don't need to do that because if you're doing it right, you're doing you're doing it based on meritocracy. You're not really, you're just going to have a mix. Sometimes this sect will be overrepresented. Next year, the other one will be overrepresented. It just doesn't, it just, it shouldn't matter if you're working properly. So let me ask you then, and I, I, we've, I, mean, I know we've kind of gone away from finance, but I think that's okay because you said it even in the webinar, and I, I fully subscribe to this view, that Lebanon's problems are not economic, they're, they're political. So politics is, at the end of the day, the, the big issue that we're all dealing with. Economics is a pain that we feel more immediately, but politics is the problem. Lebanon somehow, the inertia, at the end of the day, is to govern this way. And for better or worse, this is how things tend to maybe not work, but this is business as usual, that despite yeah. all efforts, and it's been 30 years since the Civil War ended, the average Lebanese citizen today may want a different, may, may want a better state, but still cannot get there. So, I mean, is it psychological? Is it is it is it that the, the power sharing is so old and so strong that we don't appreciate how sturdy it is? You have to think about how different groups in this country, what they're, how they experience their interaction with their, this country. Everything here is existential. The Druze see their position and their interaction with the society as existential. Christians mm. do the same. Shia do the same. Because there's no sense of security for anybody. And if you give up this sectarian power sharing, the consequence of it to somebody who does not feel secure in their own country, secure under this under their system of government, is that they will want the sectarian power sharing because it's existential. Yeah. The consequences of it failing is is their their elimination from this country. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's what you need to solve. Because if people felt secure, then they wouldn't care that somebody from a different sect is president. They feel secure in their country, whatever he be, it doesn't matter. And there is an incentive for the existing power, you know, established establishment to not offer up that security because they are beneficiaries of right. that feeling of insecurity people have. This is what this is what I don't understand about people who um, focus in the way that they do about um, the the weapons of Hezbollah, for example. Mm. Is that mm. talk about that? Because I think that's an important it's topic. One of, the, one of those rare episodes where I deliberately didn't bring it up and then no, it no, comes no. up on its own. So, <laughs> that, please. Because, because it's an important topic. Yeah. And because of my background in a place where you have a free, liberal, pluralistic society where everybody feels secure and everybody's on equal ground. I am I'm obviously a supporter of having a one army with that has weapons, no militias, and it's not just Hezbollah that's armed, everybody's armed. I don't think, I, I don't want that in the country because that makes me feel insecure. But in order for me to end up in a place where there are no armed uh, a resistance group or, or militias or whatever they are, you need to address the reason why this exists. And you don't address it by just saying, we need to disarm this or disarm that guy and take by force their weapons away from them. Because first, you can't do it by force. You can only do it by convincing people that they don't need these weapons to feel secure in their own country. If you want to have, if you want to disarm people, you need to recognize the reason why they feel they need to be armed. You need to recognize the fact that people in the South were neglected by their government for most of the history of this country and were faced with um, attacks that their government did not protect them from. And that's why they feel like they need an, an armed group to defend them because their government won't do it. So... Rather than saying we need to disarm everybody by force, let's address the issue and make people feel secure in their country. And because you do it from the bottom up, you do it voluntarily. And it's the only way to do it because otherwise you're going to have, you know, one of the reasons that you could potentially have another war in this country because people see everything in existential terms here. So how do you get them not to see their existence here being threatened? Let's go with that. A healthy dialogue on the insecurity of a certain population, geographically or confessional, just the insecurities and the the willingness to hold on to Civil War-era-like arms. And it's actually more sophisticated in certain ways than the Lebanese army. What kind of conversation do you have in Lebanon that addresses those issues and then you have that population feeling more secure? Because that, what you're saying, I think, is the wall that we all face in Lebanon. And that I think also trickles down to other issues too. It's not just uh, weapons. That it, it sort of, it impacts every other problem. What is the mechanism there? I, I, I simply don't see it. I, I don't know yeah. what it And I, I wish it was there, but I don't know what it would even look like in the Lebanese context. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's, it's not an, an easy answer to to conjure up because it's I don't you know I wish after the Civil War we had done more cultural exchanges you could say you know because I know people that I grew up with in Tripoli who you know had never met a Druze person in their life and then the first time they go up okay I took my friends up to to visit my my friend from college uh, and, and, and they I never went back to Tripoli <laughs> They loved it. They, they would call me every weekend. Can we go up and, and visit Jed again? It's like it's a different and, uh, planet. So, so exactly. So, so that automatically removes some of the barrier because they know that, no, I mean, these are guys just like us. They like to do the same things we do. Um, yeah. How do you do that on a national scale so that people see each other as human beings just like them who have the same problems, same issues, and are not a threat to them? Now, how do you do that in the context where you have a political establishment that is incentivized not to make that happen? 
I don't know. Um, I, I don't know how that happens. Yeah. Um, you know, one way that you make people feel insecure is, okay, you remove Riyad Salemi, and then you remove that guy, and you remove that guy. And if you're only removing Christians, then people feel like, okay, what the hell? Why is it yeah. only us being removed? That's uh, true. Um, so that in itself causes insecurity, even though you might say, oh, this guy does actually need to be removed. But you know what? No, screw you. Remove your guy first. I, I don't know what the solution to it is. You know, maybe it's the new generation that doesn't have these kinds of thoughts because they've gone to a, a school that is multi-confessional, gone to university, worked in Beirut, um, doesn't really have these this uh, legacy of the civil war. Um, maybe it's, you know what, maybe unfortunately all, the only solution is that it's just going to take time. People get exposed to media on YouTube and TV and travel, maybe. And, and that's the only way that you're going to end up getting through this. And you have organizations that will organize this kind of thing and encourage it. Um, I mean, what did countries do that had these kinds of conflicts? You know, what did, uh, what did Rwanda do? What did uh, former Yugoslavia do? Um, uh, you know, I'll know actually, that, I'm going to... I, I don't like to interject my own thoughts when I'm asking somebody. I feel like I'm interfering a bit, but I'm going to get on this. And maybe we can wrap it up around this issue. Balkans, every paramilitary group was disarmed against the population's aspirations, against its desires. Every single Bosnian Serb paramilitary in Bosnia was disarmed. At times it took NATO intervention, and it, at times it was done in different ways. And then you have these figures showing up in, in the ICC in The Hague. You have Karadzic and Mladic and these sort of figures, and Milosevic dies in jail. And, uh, and this is a very, it's a very, uh, it's a heavy sort of involvement in de-escalating and disarming sub-state groups. That's the Balkan experience. Uh, Northern Ireland, I mean, the IRA disarmed. And only today do people talk about Belfast and sort of like this, uh, yeah, it's a very hip, up-and-coming part of Northern Ireland. And it's funny, you think of Belfast. I'm old enough to know Belfast in a very different way. People think of Belfast as sort of the next exciting sort of destination. Um, every other experience in, in sort of transition from conflict to post-conflict or whatever, conflict resolution, disarmament of sub-state groups happens. In Lebanon, it happened. In the early 1990s, there was only one group left that had weapons. It was smaller back then. It was nowhere near as, in, as sort of a, uh, an existential issue as it is right now, uh, but it was there. The other, other weapons that exist in Lebanon were Syrian and Israeli weapons on Lebanese soil, but those departed as well. So it's really Lebanon's post-Civil War era, I think, and maybe I can get your thoughts on this, we can only talk about post-Civil War history once all groups are treated the same way. And there isn't one that's given special status. Even if it requires heavy exchange with a community that feels that their that their well-being is at stake the moment those weapons depart. But that's just that's part of the story. That that, that has to be done somehow. Regardless, the weapons are still there. And uh, I don't know. I see that always as kind of... Every other issue in Lebanon is problematic. Holding the state to account, I think, is impossible. So long as the civil war state sort of uh, limps on. And maybe I can just ask you if, if, that, if that resonates with you or do you see it as, as sort of separate? That, no, no, Lebanon is unique in a sense uh, and Lebanon can handle Hezbollah while sort of moving forward in, in other areas? Um, I mean, it may be that Hezbollah is a major roadblock to what needs to be done in this country because, you know, for various reasons, um, you know, there are sanctions on this country. Um, yeah. There's this desire to face East and, and de-dollarize the economy. And so, so what do you do, you know? Um, I, I think if Hezbollah didn't exist, we would still be in this mess. I don't think they're the cause mm. of it. Mm. And I think it would still be very difficult to solve it. But mm. I think the existence of, of Hezbollah and the way our international interactions have, have gone and the way that you have groups that 
are more powerful than the state. Yeah, obviously. I mean, who's it's it's un, nobody can deny that this is a an issue to doing. I mean, what if if everybody else wants to do something, and a group that's armed doesn't? It's not going to happen. You know, I think it's it's as really as simple as that. Right. What we need, and again, you know, I feel like spending too much time in the U.S., you become very uh, idealistic about what can be <laughs> achieved, because you you know you you read stories from history and even modern history of people, countries that mobilized together to solve, to face an, an incredible challenge. And they made very difficult decisions together. You know, is it possible that we have a national dialogue in this country where we figure out, you know, the, the, uh, how to solve the financial and economic crisis, where we figure out how to do reforms, where we figure out the issue of Hezbollah and its relationship to the state and its and our international relations in a way that is, everybody in this country can get behind and it takes brave decisions to do that. Absolutely. If that is not possible, if it's not possible for us to do that, then we cannot solve any of our problems. And there's only two directions you go after that, okay? You go into each community, you know, collapsing upon itself and mm -hmm. having different, you know, cantons in this country. Yeah. Um, you go to civil war or you just go to chugging along with this current system where people get poorer, the economy gets weaker. We have more sanctions. We have more, um, you know, what we're seeing now, but just progressively getting worse and worse and worse and worse until people can't take it anymore. And then what happens after that, I really don't know. Um, you know, it's a time, I think, I usually don't like to depend on, you know, the, whatever it's called, there's the theory of international relations, like the, the it's a theory that's about the role of the individual, the individual decision maker uh -huh. in, in determining um, the, the, the future of a country. But I think, unfortunately, we're in a place where really that's where you are. There's no institutions here. All you have is strong men. And if they're not willing and able to do it, then we just need to wait because a war will happen or eventually they'll be replaced by people who are willing to do it. And it's just unfortunate that that's kind of, I think, where we find ourselves. And I don't know if I'm curious to hear your, your perspective on that, actually. I'll say something, and I'm pretty sure you'll agree on this, that... I saw the debate on the streets of Beirut from October until maybe January. And I was in Martyr's Square almost every day in Riyadh Salah. And I saw that exchange. And I thought it was finally a population having a, a conversation. And there was really no, no politician there. It was just the average Lebanese interested in learning. I mean, sort of funny moments where the egg became a sort of like a town hall. Uh, yeah, Martyr Square itself, and yeah, yeah, you had tents. I was even. there too. You were there, right? And the, I mean, yeah. while it's raining, people are talking about the need for transportation and, and public transportation. It's like, almost like a, it's a parallel conversation in a sense. It's almost <laughs> like th these are the basics and this is what we need. So I, I saw that, and I don't think in any of those conversations anyone even cared where the person was coming from. It was like a complete non issue. The names didn't matter. Uh, there was no sort of, you know, this is going to offend certain people or certain communities. It began happening maybe in January that sort of uh, the conversation was stifled. I mean, COVID-19, I think the, the, the it had already dwindled so much before COVID-19. But anyway, coronavirus just sort of swept it away. Now it's back, and it's not the debate, it's not the dialogue, it's more the, uh, we're, hu we're hungry, we're about to starve, we're desperate, and we're going to break things, and we're going to set fires, and we're going to, we're going to, you know, really sort of intimidate. And that to me is not, that is maybe in that, maybe that is the only expression left, maybe, but it's not the debate that one, that you need to have if you're going to have political change down the road. But in, in any... In any case, I guess what I'm saying is I've seen both. I've seen the positive, which did not reach political power, at least not yet. I also, I think, we're both seeing the negative now, which is maybe it's just too difficult to do this right now. And uh, 
have to resort to more immediate painful ways of expressing before we get to a better place i i i i like i mean i've been in new york since and i agree with you on that decentralized way that you can live in new york city and whatever trump says in the white house has almost no impact no impact on the governing of new york maybe it takes people to the street to protest but it, that, that's something else this the governance the accountability there's a mayor here and the mayor is more important there's a governor cuomo in albany who has some authority too has leverage it's it's many steps before you reach trump and that is appealing to me and as somebody who's originally from tripoli as well yeah it, it no you do well bil ghalat ana ana like your friends by the way any excuse to go up to the shuf i take it because it's really like i wish i was from the shuf you take trip but you are from tripoli you are aslan I, i guess no but i i see it i see it in a similar way maybe that is the only path and then maybe maybe an issue like a group's weaponry uh if it's not if it cannot be challenged now given all the regional dynamics that lebanon is part of maybe it should be contained in different ways not through violence but through just maybe this is a form of accountability maybe we'll take care of our sort of immediate domestic local issues and uh that group has its sort of its leverage in its own way that's not a, that's a sad ending to lebanon i think personally i think it's a it's sort of like it shows that the experiment didn't last but that might be the other that that might be one of the few options left because i don't want to see a return to civil war I think that's uh, it's unnecessary at this point. It's just we've done that. It didn't get yeah. us anywhere. Uh so anyway, that's very bleak. We're having a national discussion about yeah. what we want in this country and what kind of country we want to be and how we're okay. going to organize ourselves. And I wish the local media would start having that conversation and amplifying it because the way we're going now, this country is done if we keep going the way we're going now. I'm going to try to I want to try to end it in in a slightly I'm more optimistic because this is I first I'm going to say first and foremost you gave me too much of your time so that's highly appreciated. Second thing is and I saw this on Twitter uh, weeks ago that you're reluctant to give interviews anyway. You try not to show you try not to sort of put your face in every outlet and you're you sort of you're careful. So you let me ask you questions for an hour I'm I'm very flattered. Also most important thing in this whole conversation if i'm ever bored with you on the monitor i just look around you and i see the sort of mo- the most interesting collection of art <laughs> behind you and i have no idea what this stuff is i'm just sort of looking at it all the time like huh this is where he gets his ideas from hmm that's my that's inspiration back there that's your inspiration oh there's more that wow oh, yeah. <laughs> oh it's uh, it's everywhere okay sorry is my is this is this your work or is this just collection no, 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 no. collection Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, you've got a you got a very interesting very interesting taste. May I ask you who's who's doing all these designs behind you? Um, I mean a lot of them are Is it a bunch of people? Retro posters. Yeah. Okay. Retro posters, some kind of uh very abstract art. Um a lot of it is local artists who uh, I don't know unfortunately, but you know, just um I it's a better background than just having a white wall behind me. Absolutely. And I think you should give every interview this way because by default people are like oh, this is really interesting and you can kind of seduce <laughs> them more with your thoughts of accountability. It's like, yes, yes, I agree. I agree. What the hell is that? <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully they'll be listening to my words also and not just uh, Let's say like, like a bit of both. A bit of both, a bit of both. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for your time. And I hope we can have different conversations down the road and I, there's a lot of other op- other topics I'd like to talk to you about as well but but thank yeah. you for I for your time yeah. thank you for thank the invitation thanks for listening and a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through patreon or paypal all links are in the details box below until next time i'm rani shatah and this is the beirut banyan <laughs>